Welcome to the Linguistic Show, where we talk about life, love, and everything else. There's always something to talk about with this couple, so you never know what may come out of their mouth. Everybody, welcome back to the Linguistic Show. It's your co-host Carol, and we're here with a special guest today. We're here with my dad, and so today's topic is going to be something that we hope that this that this episode inspires people to be the best they can, no matter what happened in the past. So I'm going to have my dad introduce himself. So, Dad, who are you? Good. <laughs> I am being interviewed today on some topics that may inspire each and every one of you all. And we have talked about it in the past, but now we're going to be sharing it with our audience. Yeah. And so the the topic today is be afraid to quit. And so that's something that that my dad can definitely speak upon because he is very motivated. It takes it takes a lot to not quit. And so I think he's a great inspiration for anyone, whether you're a man or woman, younger, older, and married, single, it doesn't matter because his his life story and and how he and how he turned that into who he is, I think is definitely worth y'all hearing about. So Let's hear a little bit about you, Dad, and some background, maybe like how you grew up or like what led you to have this kind of mindset of being afraid to quit. Okay. Well, I started out in a young age being motivated, building items that I couldn't afford to buy. Uh, Growing up in the country uh, for about five to seven years, we were inspired <clears throat> by a lot of things that we saw on TV. Uh, initially, when skating came out, we had skates that were made out of steel that we would wrap around our tennis shoes, and we would skate in the streets. And once the skating season was over, we would take those same skates and create go-karts, and we would go and ride go-karts made out of steel wheels sliding all over the asphalt in Gastonia, North Carolina. Now, with the skateboards, we went to go-karts, which was just a two by four, and we took a spring that we would take from screen doors, we'd take a broomstick that belonged <laughs> to someone, we would cut it up. I'll be like, Bunny, where's my broom? Yeah. <laughs> And we would go to junkyards and get steering wheels off old cars, and that would be our steering. So we, the spring would be on one side, and we would nail the string to one of the two-by-fours at the front wheel. And as you turn the wheel to the right, the spring would, turn, would bring the wheels back to the left. And that was our steering mechanism. So we did that for a couple of years. And then I moved to the city of Detroit where I was a young kid. I moved up there when I was in the fifth grade. And during that time in Detroit, it was a thriving middle class uh, and community. 
Uh, the community was a village, meaning that each neighbor looked at kids as their own and would report to the parents about mischieving kids or things that we were doing wrong. And that kept me straight and narrow. But I had cousins who were a little devious and wouldn't listen, and I didn't follow them. As I grew older, we would uh, play sports. And I think I started playing sports in the eighth grade. But in the city, there's a lot of competition. It's very competitive, where you could be called a, a wimp or a loser if you gave up. So I learned way back in those days not to give up. I always tried to be the best, and competition was 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 good. You know, everybody competed for different positions, whether it be football, baseball, basketball. Uh, that's what we played. And uh, that started me off as trying to be a winner. And from junior high school to high school, uh, our coach was very inspirational. He was like a father image to us. Uh, we were kids growing up in the city. Uh, we didn't have no leadership because basically it was a hustling type of city where you had to fend for yourself. Uh, we had a lot of fighting in the neighborhood, but if you didn't fight, you would get beat on every day. So sometimes I would fight big kids, little kids, just to keep my reputation up that I wasn't afraid of no one. I would get beat sometimes, and most of the time I would be the conqueror. But that led me to being stronger and not being afraid. And the coach also had a saying that a winner never lose and a loser never wins. And I didn't know what that meant till later on in life, but that was his goal to make us winners. And we were winners in our, in our sports in high school. And so then um, since you had cousins who were, um, who were uh, who were in your same age range, and some of them, uh, you were saying, didn't follow the rules pretty much. Like, was was the was the value of of being afraid to quit something that that you also saw maybe like within like your older cousins or your um, uncles and aunts that they may not have actually um told you that lesson like in their words, but did you like see that with those who were like a little bit um older than you as well, like like being afraid of quitting? I did see that in my grandfather. You know, he was a provider. Uh, but at living in the city, um, my growing up was a little different from folks in the other parts of the city. It was more of a hustling type of environment. Uh, we gambled. Uh, we played all types of... Uh, games and I would watch the older people come through and I was inspired by them the nice cars, the suits, the perfumes, the colognes and everybody was in a position where they seemed to be achievers and I wanted to be that way but 
the achievers, mostly of them, were into the streets, into drugs, into gambling, into illegal things, numbers. Uh, I remember the number runners would come to our house and we would play numbers, a penny, a nickel. And before the actual numbers became legal, the numbers would be predicated on the horses. So the horse races would predicate what the number would be for that particular day. You know, win, place, and show. If number one came in, that was one. If number 10 came in, that was 10. In second place, if number 12 came in, in third place, it would be one, 10, two. That, that's what that, um, that phrase means. I never knew that in, until just now. Oh. Like the whole, like the, uh, um, you were saying, I think it was win, place, and show. Was that what you were yeah, saying? Yeah, uh, win, place, and show. Because I've heard that phrase before, but I didn't know what it meant. I had no clue what it meant. Oh, yeah. So, anyway, I didn't play the number. The sports kind of took me out of the avenue of, of going down that road. And in our high school in Detroit, it was mandatory that you became a three letterman. You couldn't play just one sport and be off for the, the winter or the summer or the spring. In the fall, you had, you had to play football or run track. In the winter, you had to play basketball, swimming team. And in the summer, you had to play um, either baseball, soccer, hockey, tennis, but you had to play a sport. You couldn't be idle at no time during any sports season. So was was that more so like from your coach or was it from your actual school? Like have they, have they didn't want you all to be idle like during various sports seasons? No, that was from the coach. Okay. And then that kept us busy. Now I did have time to do mischievous things but most of the time I was into sports, all the time. I mean, around the clock, or well, I say around the season, I say around mm -hmm. the clock. And then uh, my cousins weren't into sports. They were into hustling. So I learned how to hustle too, but I also learned how to get my education. And of all my cousins, I had six first cousins. And of all the six first cousins, None of them finished high school. I was the only one to finish high school, only one to go to college, the only one to try to make a living. It's like make it out, really. You make it out, and I made it out, and then came down to, to D.C., where I continued my education, and, to, and started to raise a family at a young age. I was 23 when I got married. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a kid in high school, uh, it's Everett, um, but uh, I didn't get married to his mother. But by, by being a, um, a teen father, um, did you think that that, um, that, um, that, that, helped, that that helped with your drive of being afraid of, of quitting? Oh yes, that was my drive. How so? And that, that came, the drive was instilled in me again in high school from my coach. But I didn't want 
to see my kids go through what I went through. Uh, maybe a lot of stuff I'm not telling in this interview, but it was not an easy life. But I did not want them to go through what I went through. And the coach always told us that we didn't have to be a product of our environment. You may grow up in a, as a gangster, you may see it all, but you don't have to be that way. And I took the road, the hard road out was being on that track of not going back to or getting into illegal items of, of life, drugs and prostitution and pimping. And I knew all that. I saw all that. And I knew how to do all that. But that just wasn't my interest because it was short term. I've seen kids going back to my elementary days. They were overdosing on heroin. You know, that was a, a thing that was running rapid in the city. And uh, I've seen pimps having prostitutes all over the city, driving Cadillacs. So was this, so this was probably in the maybe late 60s, in the in the early mid 70s? Well, it was in the mid, mid, late 60s. Okay. Yeah, mid, late 60s. But I was young, but being young, then was actually being old because when I was 11 and 12 you know I was doing things that grown ups would do I was buying my own clothes I was doing a little hustle on the weekends make money go down buy what I needed and go to school and Dapper Don is from New York but in Detroit, Dapper, Dapper Don was us. <laughs> it, was, it was you and some of your cousins, like us and yeah, your friends. Yeah, we wore the best clothes. Uh, and we did that for years. Okay. So then let's, let's, let's kind of go back slash, um, slash fast forward to uh, uh, when you had moved to the D.C. area. So you had moved to um, to Northern Virginia. So that was like Falls, well, I guess Falls Church, Arlington, and those different areas. But but besides there, um, your coach, was there anything or anyone that like really stuck out to, there like really help you see that like you have the ability to, like take what you learned in Detroit and then like build. I build a business, for example. So, like you, I'm, I've been an um, entrepreneur for my whole life, and I'm 41. So, like even I mean, even before I was born, like you were always into like being your um your own business leader. So, like, what do you think led to that? Well, in '69, when I moved down from D- Detroit down to Washington D.C., I came down with my mother, and my stepfather, and. Uh, I finished my last year of school uh, in Virginia, but the term or the interest of being entrepreneur was entrepreneurship was instilled in me way back when I was in my teens because I I knew the money that could be made if you put your own interest in, at hand and believed in yourself. But I did work, you know, for Giant Foods. I worked uh, at HFC, that's Household Finance. I think I've had three jobs, uh, but I always wanted to believe in myself. So when I got into entrepreneurship, which was construction, 
it came from a gentleman that I was playing basketball with who had a construction company and he needed salesmen. But I was a good salesman, you know, so I could sell. Yeah, he can sell, what's, what's the <laughs> phrase? He can sell water to a fish, he can sell Oh, I could sell um, ice to that, an Eskimo. Yeah, that, that's what it is. <laughs> so, yeah, so like whatever analogy, phrase, he can sell whatever phrase y'all thinking about. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was my phrase. I could sell ice to an Eskimo, even though he had a refrigerator full of it. And they would buy it, too. <laughs> and they would buy it. <laughs> so I used that, that, my intelligence and my knowledge of selling. Uh, I started selling home improvements. And I worked full-time at Giant. But my admiration was seeing Giant Food being a billion-dollar company. And I'm working by the hour, and I'm saying, man, if I gave myself 100% of what I know and believed in myself, I could be just as big as they they are. And that's what was always stuck in my mind. But being self-employed means you have to be self-motivated. So I did have some downfalls, but I knew that I could recover. As I, as I grew older, my first cousin, Joselle, and I were very close. So we were always working on how to make money. So we would like, create uh, how to make money. And I remember my first time trying to make money. I must have been in the eighth grade. But we would take this big, big one-gallon uh, pickle jug. Pickle, uh, I guess you'd call it a one-gallon jar. Okay. We would fill it with water and we would put a shot glass in the bottom of the of the uh, of the jar, one gallon pickle jar. And we would put a lid on top and slice the lid enough for, for corn to go through it. So we would walk through the neighborhood and we would say, you can get this penny inside of this corn, this uh, shot glass we would give you five times that amount. Okay. So, anyway, we would go through and folks would put their penny in, nickel in, a quarter. And sometimes they would, just, the corn would flow through the water and land in the uh, shot glass. But most times it wouldn't, would not. So we made a lot of corns that way. And then as we got older, we would give house parties. Uh, you know, it would, be, it would have uh, like blue lights in the basement, but we would have blue lights in the basement. And we would be like a house party. All the high school kids, the junior high school kids would come over. And we would charge like 50 cents to go downstairs. Okay. We didn't have a DJ, we had a jukebox. Mm-hmm. And, um, Put their money into the jukebox, play the records, and dance and sweat and yeah. have fun. Yeah. So we then, okay. So then, when you think about some of the things that that um, that that happened in your childhood and then in your teen years, um, from what I just know, you know, as being your daughter, you've um you have always found a way to be a 
a business owner. So whether it was with a jukebox um, in the parties or as an adult. So then uh, what do you think um, led you to actually become such a savvy business person uh, opposed to want to work for someone like in an office or work for someone um, um, else's business? Well, I can touch on that uh, real good. So I guess jumping into adult life, I had a job at H Household Finance. That was my first job when I first got out of high school. And uh, ended up working at Giant Foods. I worked midnight at Giant Foods for probably six or seven years. <clears throat> I moved from the the night shift to the day shift at Giant. And then from the day shift, I was on day five years. Moved into the corporate office over in Landover, Maryland, off Sheriff Road. Okay, because I never knew that you were in the corporate office. Cause like, I knew that you worked there like when you were um in, in Virginia, but I'm learning new things about you as well, Dad. This is great. Oh, yes. I worked in corporate for probably three years. Well, what inspired me to leave, I was uh, met this one guy named Bill Whaley on the basketball court, and he had started a construction a home improvement company. He needed salesmen. So he taught me how to fail where I would knock on doors and I would advocate or solicit things that the people may need. You know, I was able to read houses. When I say read houses, I would be on the outside of a house where they need a roof, if they needed new windows, painting, siding, uh, gutters. We would canvas different neighborhoods, and then you would look at a house and say, well, this house needs a new roof. So you knock on the door, and you would talk to the people. And I uh, would tell them that the roof is going bad. And I work in the neighborhood. We'd like to give you a price. And I got a lot of my deals that way, but I was still working full-time at, at Giant. Okay. But I was when I got up and worked at Giant at 3, I would canvas from maybe four o'clock to seven o'clock, knocking on doors. And uh, I was making more money doing that than I was on a, with a weekly salary. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So I would go in the office, and there was three people in the office, either Stan and Ed. They had been with Giant you know, 25, 30 years. And I've only been in corporate for three years, but I've been with Giant for maybe 12. Okay. And I said, man, if I decide if I could put 100% into selling and put 100% into myself, I could make it just as much money as these guys are making in a month. I could make that in a week. So that's when I decided I would quit Giant and work full time selling. Okay. So, and I was, 
So like, were you um in your mid twenties by uh, by this point, or were you already in your thirties by this point? Mm, that was probably let's see. We got married. That's uh seventy-two. Because I was married to mom then. Okay. Yeah, we got married. Uh, I think at twenty-four. So I was married doing this. I wasn't single. Okay. So I'm thinking eighty-four, nineteen eighty-four is when I started four times. So from seventy-two to eighty to eighty-four. That's when I worked at Giant. Okay, wow. And I quit in 84. And I started working with Bill Whaley. But what got me into the business, I, I had sold all these jobs. Yeah. All right. So basically, it sounds like he just like picked up and left and took all the money with him too. Yes. Uh huh. Wow. Well, I had to go and talk to my customers. Six customers I had to talk to. But during the selling and the counseling, I got to know all of the, the subcontractors. You know, they would get acquainted with those guys. As I told the homeowner what happened and.
I wanted to learn it myself, too. I said, man, I need to learn this because I want to give me a good deal tonight. Right, exactly. <laughs> so I would take my suit off and my dress clothes, and I would I start working with them, learning how to do carpentry and electrical and plumbing and roofing and drywall and, you know, work with all of them, hands-on. And I got pretty good at it. to Landover every every weekday. Yeah. having awnings was such a popular thing anyway because I remember seeing that houses in D.C., Virginia, um, and elsewhere. So so definitely know that that was a really, really big thing back then, having awnings on your windows in your patio. Yes. So I saw a lot of those. But my company name was Superior Awning and Siding. Awnings. Because I never knew what that stood for um, as a kid. So, um, as a kid. so um, I would I would guess what it meant, but I had no idea until you no, know, just now, like what it actually stood for. Because I'm thinking there is no one at the house that has an S name, and I have no clue what you know, what this stands for. But now I know Superior Awning and Siding, aka yes. SAS Construction. Okay. Mm-hmm. I said, wow, maybe that does have an impact on 
Oh yeah. Oops. No. Uh, the perception of you. Mm-hmm, the perception. I mean, I said, well, I want to keep it. So after that's why I created SAS Construction, then I got licensed, bonded under that name. Then I was uh, listening myself, you know, to other construction companies. Mm-hmm. You know, the subcontractor. So I, I met this one guy named Mr. Lassiter. He had an office on Central Avenue, right across from the subway on Central Avenue and uh, Addison Road Station. <laughs> Addison Road Station. Um, okay. Right there. That was not on up there now, but that was mm-hmm. it's good as a long liquor store. Mm hmm. And he, I had office right between the liquor store and the barber shop or through the salon. Right, okay. So I met him there. And this one guy that I talked to a lot, uh, who I was subcontract, he was uh, Project Mountain. His name was Sam Friday. Okay, Uncle Sam, okay. Mm-hmm. So Sam Friday, and Mr. Lassiter was close. Mr. Lassiter was pretty retired, but he was an old guy. He was probably up in his... 80s. And Sam called me one day and said, Man, I want I want kind of work for you. But Mr. Lassen get ready to close down. And I needed all this experience of how to read blueprints and how to bid jobs. Mm-hmm. So I said, Sure. So we got together and they came to an agreement. And uh, he started working for me. Okay. And Remember him as well. Remember him from from the eighties. Yeah. So then, uh, uh, when you were um starting your business as the um awning and siding, then you transferred to a larger general uh, construction. Um, did you have anything um happen that you know, that made you possibly want to give up, but then you didn't quit though? told us you know those um those exact words but, but just like me um me like seeing you and mom but i'm more so seeing you you know since you had your own business 
that's something that 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 was you no know, that was taught to us um indirectly you know like if you quit now like you don't you don't know what's going to happen they may actually work out for you so like i definitely have had that lesson from as a kid as a teen um now as a parent too you know, you know just to never stop trying because you may actually you know push through so don't quit without giving it your all and so that is right. a, that that's a huge lesson dad you know that you've taught me and, and i hope that you know but if you didn't know now you know like biggie if you don't know now you know yeah biggie small exactly you don't know now you know <laughs> yeah know. great childhood <laughs> yeah. yeah so then those are those are things you know that I definitely have have tried to help um help your granddaughter see as well you know uh, in terms of um don't stop trying till you have really tried all options you've weighed every recently um, you've weighed every option you've tried every you know, step or method, and then maybe you do have you know to move on, but like don't just quit without giving it your all. So that's a huge lesson, you know, that I have taught you know the kids as well. Oh yeah, well that's yeah, you know, that came from childhood, and more so with the impact in high school when I was, you know, going to Persian. You know, we uh, he was a motivator, father that makes. Mm-hmm. all that stuck with me those little things yeah. you know uh, you know when I never lose a loser never wins right I do remember hearing that I'm growing up as a kid I'm thinking okay I get what he means but why do you have to say such like simple things but now that I'm a parent I think of things differently <laughs>
Right. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, definitely. You're not you're losing hours. You won't lose your job. But just like hearing you, t- but like hearing you talk about your um your um lack of sleep, how you are in college, you're you're working full time, you have a son, and so like you are balancing so much at that age. So like, what um what made you want to um to keep on going and to keep on growing? Because that's a whole lot to, to be handling. The lack of sleep, a young kid, college, homework, full-time job, family. I mean, that's a lot. I was thinking of Goldman Sachs, but it's not them you're saying.
Okay. You know, so I, man, I had to quit school or stay in school and quit playing ball. Mm. But I wanted to stay in school. And uh, I didn't take that project. So I stayed with Giant. But prior to Giant, I was working at HFC. Right, okay. And that's, this story about blow your mind. Because HFC, I was living with mom. This was in 60. He said, HFC. I guess 70, it was 73. And HFC in Virginia from my house was a long, about, it was quite a ways. But I would leave the house and I would walk, man, from, he never stayed in Virginia, I don't think. No, he didn't. But Bailey's Crossroads all the way up to Wilson Boulevard. Each day? Uh, yeah, it wasn't with a Robert. It was a long walk, but I'll walk. Wow. I'll walk all the way. It would take me about 45 minutes and an hour to get to work. And uh, I did that for a while before I got a car. Okay. So that's definitely you no. Know, that is dedication because you had, I mean, you had to work. So like you got there, however, however that meant that meant walking or or getting a, a ride sometimes. Yeah. So I just to get tired of me, they just put me somewhere. 
somewhere. Right, so so you stop calling them. Yeah, stop calling them, yeah. And then Henry Clay was the, and I forgot the lady's name, but they ran me. Yeah, I had a formula office at the time, and Virginia was right there at Seven Corners, right off of uh, King Street, or Leesburg Pike at the time. Mm-hmm. Right, you yeah, but know where that is, okay. Great, and Lord Teller was right there in that same building with Lord Teller. So they put me on, my first store was in Oakton, Virginia. And then they transferred me to Vienna. And then from Vienna, they transferred me to Maple. I mean, uh, the store down in McLean. That's where all the rich people were. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a, but I went day shift then. Okay. And I met so many the rich folks, the Kennedys, uh, a lot of the congressmen and senators. They all were living in them plain areas. That was that was like Potomac at the time. Right. still learning so i'm still learning more and more about about like you working at giant for um for uh, for longer than what i thought it was um you being a um a um shop steward like with uh, with the union you have so much that that is just amazing that that you know that i'm learning that you know that like folks who are going to listen to this will um, also learn so this has been wonderful just learning more about you people are that way still to this day so i'm like okay yeah i am i mean yeah so that definitely was something that that wasn't taught outright growing up but but that's how we lived like we were a humble and modest family so no matter what we had or didn't have it wasn't flashy like to the extent that that it could have been so i definitely um um appreciate that kind of um upbringing 
of don't be flashy. Um, <laughs> Right, yeah. yeah. I know what you mean. We had the nice stuff. You know, we was a middle class family, but it was just common, you know. Yeah. It wasn't like, oh, I'm a spit I'm better than you. And I was able to talk to anyone, you know, if you were the bomb or if you were the president, I could elevate my conversation to whoever I was dealing with. Yeah, and that and that is something you know, that um, that the kids also say. Oh my gosh, Poppy, he talks to all these people, and you're and you're just like him. And Grandma was like, "Well, that's how I was raised. You just talk to people, whether you know them or not." But um, but you know, that actually brings me to a um a, a memory of of when you met the Queen, when when she was here in D.C. Oh yeah, yeah so like. Tell us more about that because, like, I, I mean, I kind of know, know that, like, somehow you ended up getting a picture with her. And I'm thinking, how? But that's dad. So, like, okay, so what? I, I get how <laughs> because it's you. Because, like, you, you just talk to everybody. <laughs> yeah, well, well, what happened, I was, at that time, I did, I had stopped, started working. I quit dying. I had created SAS construction. And here again, I was saying I wanted to work. Was in corporation, so some kind of way I got involved with Marshall Heights Community Development. Okay. Over on uh, Minnesota Avenue and Blaine. Mm-hmm. In some way, we built houses on Drake Street, and the Queen was due to come over there. And I said, well, "Man, I gotta get really sharp, man." So. So was this in the mid nineties or because I, I mean I, I kind of remember you telling me and then like seeing a picture I'm thinking wow he really was right beside her so like I'm around when was this you think because I don't remember the year. Let me see. Let me think back when. Uh, yeah, it was about ninety. And she came to town and we got close to her, took a picture. Yeah, but I definitely yeah. know what it looks like though, because I definitely can picture it. I picture it in my head very, very clearly on that on that photo. Yeah, so that's how I met the queen. Yeah, I never thought about that. You just mentioned that how how blessed I was me with the queen, but to me, with this, I never did this on the job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, Okay. Modulus, a two-piece house. When they came on the crane, they would 
into the drywall, wall, the roofing, and the painting, and whatever it is. So we almost still about and 10 or 12 houses in the D.C. area. Okay. Low-income people. Mm-hmm. That's really cool, Dad. And then uh, with the same guy who hired me to work under him as a subcontractor, he took a project in, in uh, Hughesville, and he asked me to come down and work with him down there. So there we would built like 30 houses. Hughesville, it was Tri County, Tri County Community, Community Development. Okay. Was the was the company right in Hughesville at all? On Route Five, and uh, we worked with with them down there. Each homeowner qualifies. It was ten homeowners, and each homeowner had to help each homeowner build houses. Once the land was clear and the foundation was in, mm-hmm. then all 10 families would, after work, they would come. They would each, all 10 had to work on one house at a time. So we built one house and then we moved to somebody else's house or somebody mm-hmm. else's house until we got all 10 of them built. That's an interesting model. I mean, and nobody can move in. Nobody, nobody can move into all the houses was totally completed. Right. Okay. So, so we had this one couple, they were lazy. They never come to help us. Mm-hmm. And their house was the last house that we built. And they had to help us then. I said, you want to move into this house, you're going to have to build it. Right. You never show up, you want to help. Well, my house should have been in the next row. Now, we skipped over your house. <laughs> you didn't come to help us. Yeah, you want to come when it's time to build your house. But no, if you're going to be the last one being built. And that's where I thought it was. Yeah. So we, we had 10 houses. This was down in uh, um, was it, um, Zakaya Swamp. Is that is that what it was? I'm just guessing a neighborhood down in Hughesville. I guess that's I guess that's Walter for Hughesville. Well, we, well, the first set was over in uh, we were in the Indian Highway, Indian Village, all the way down to Indian Oh, uh, uh, okay. On, on so two ten. Okay. Oh, wow, but down there, okay. That's where the first 10 was built. And then 10 were built in the Hughesville area. Okay, that was after Indian Head, okay. After Indian Head, and then another 10 was built uh, right there off of, uh, we're down 301. Uh, what's the name of that street? Whatever, the liquor store. Right before you get to the bridge. Uh, oh, um, um, it's, it's all lit up now. Uh, Newburgh? Yep, that's exactly what it was. They had a little section back there that they built, built in houses. Oh, wow. Okay. Is, um, are that kind of model common back you know, back then, or is that just something that um, that was kind of um of unique to Maryland, possibly? But this no. whole. Okay. Okay. Once the house was built, then the homeowners also, you know, they qualify for a loan. Mm-hmm. You know, so they had to qualify for the loan 
figure out how to do some um, asking around when I get back to work. I mean, I'm going to assume you know, that it's not around anymore, but um, you know, but like people who have been a HUD for you know, 20, 30 years, like they may know about it. So um, I'll ask some folks when I get back to work in a few weeks. Interesting. Oh. Yep. And then Hughesville, it was called Tri County, which is all the counties. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. This, yeah. This has been. I was the. Uh, mm -hmm. I was actually employed by them. I wasn't. Uh, I was. I guess it was a contractor, but I was on payroll. Okay. With the Tri County um, Community, Community Development, Development Corporation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation about just how you didn't let things that happened to you as you grew up, you know, um, make you feel like um, quitting was an option. So, like, you definitely have been through a whole lot, you know, that you've shared, plus thing, um, plus things, you know, that you um haven't shared as well, you know, that have shaped who you are today. So, I definitely thank you for like giving us some wisdom, Dad. What are, um, what are, um, what are, um, two, um, two, I guess, tips that, that you could share about, about like not giving up and not quitting because like you definitely have a lot of wisdom you know, that, that you've shared um, up to date plus that you can still share with me separately. But like, what are two things that would be like your biggest things about like not quitting?
And I used to, a lot of times I would have, uh, take these small jobs. And, but somewhat lonely year, a huge job would come. When I say huge, I thought like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Okay. $300,000 jobs. And I got involved with, uh, the 8A program for, we were working at Andrews Air Force Base, Protection Base, Fort Myers, the airport. You had some you, you you had some major contracts going on, and so like like these are like major um federal contracts. Oh yeah, very major. You're right. You know, we had to get all the people together. And these projects were running. That's why I should have been a millionaire. But I'd have I'd have the advice of a person to lead me the right way. Mm-hmm. Everything I did was trial and error, and I would accomplish it, and then. I guess boredom would step in because I said, I've accomplished this. And what's next? Then once I accomplished that, it's like it became boring. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to try something else. You know, in the, in the construction field, but I wanted to uh, elevate myself. Okay. And my biggest admiration was, man, I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30. You know, when I started taking these big government jobs, it was $900,000. Um, was a million. That was the gross. Right. Mm-hmm. Then we built churches. Right. The church that was nine hundred. The daycare center that was like seven hundred thousand. So I was a millionaire in terms of gross, but I just didn't manage things right. I look back on certain things. I said, man, if I only had a coach or someone that said, "This is what you need to do. This is what you need to do." With I was doing things on my own. And even in D.C. when I was doing construction, this, this guy named Walter Washington, Mayor Walter Washington. Okay. Now. Right. Mm-hmm. But he was he was saying you, you could buy houses for $1, but you had to live in them for five years. And uh, I said, no, I ain't going to do that because we had a house in Waldorf and Ruber. I wasn't complacent with mom and I was satisfied. And then one of them was one of you know, raised the kids down there. But to find out later, I figured about those houses and said, I'm working on them. Right. So you, don't have, you don't have to live in them while they were dilapidated. Right. You had to build it to live in them once they was completed. <laughs> and I'm thinking I had to live in them while they were dilapidated. I said, I can't live in nothing like this. But not knowing terminology once it's completed you have mm. to live in five years wow and I thought you had to live in a while they were yeah you're right that's why I didn't do nothing that's why I didn't buy none of them whoa wow there's one guy named Dr. Henry he's a dentist at Howard he's retired a long time ago mm-hmm. he bought like 40 houses and I met him later in life mm-hmm. and I must have worked on
So he he was mega mega millionaire with the with the property oh, yeah, value. Wow. He was definitely a millionaire. He had a mansion up on New Hampshire Avenue mm-hmm. up in Silver Spring. Okay. Like on 10 acres of land. Had a big lake behind his house. And he still was a dentist, but he still. But I met him later, later in life. Okay. You know, this is probably back in 2000 or something. Oh, okay. Yeah, definitely had to be years ago. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, were were these are these houses um in just in just certain parts of DC or was it all was it um all over the city like all over the city? Oh, okay. And you know, I can board it up. If it's boarded up, it was for sale. Hmm. Right. That was the thing. And uh, for some reason, I was always in the, in, in the click with what was going on. Mm-hmm. And I said, man, I'm always surprised myself. I think I was always in the know with what was going on with the people that went, this had it going on. You know, I wasn't like your average person. Yeah, the movers, the mistakes. Oh, okay. I got to that with them, but that was always with those kind of people. Okay. Yeah, they wouldn't. The average folks. It's your personality because like, you can talk to people, like whether they're high income, low income. I mean, you can you can find um something to um to relate to them somehow. So like you, so like I've always been. One of your skills, you know that you can just talk to um anybody. So that's probably what it was, I'm guessing. And that was part of why I didn't want to put me to the test. I would always prove myself, you know. I said, I'm not. I'm gonna make sure I succeed with whatever I get. And uh, I did. Yeah, I did. We did so. But mm-hmm. again, your mom had a lot to do with. Your son and daughters you know, have been been raised well. We may have had things that didn't that didn't go um go as planned in life, but that's just life anyway. But you know, but like in the long run, we're doing well and in various ways. So good parenting. Thank y'all for joining us for another episode of the Linguistic Show on being afraid to quit. And so no matter what's going on in your life, whether it's work, school, family, what other stuff, try your best to keep on pushing because if you give up before you give give all your effort, you may not know what can actually happen once you get through. So join us next week when we talk about dating after divorce. So be sure to check us out on Instagram 
um, for our show page. Also, you can hear, hear past episodes on Anchor, Stitcher, Spotify, using The Linguistic Show. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. This has been an Ashangali Enterprises production. Co-produced by Naomi. Music by Brassville. 